0: A talk feels too grand, Uh, I would say that I'm going to share a few reflections that I've been coming back to again and again and again over these last five years as chair. And I will probably talk more about the struggles of power mode than uh, (laughs) love mode. Um, A bit of both, but mainly reflections around power mode. I'll start with a personal story. So, at one point, um, during my time as chair, uh, a person, an order member, came with a request to the Council of the Stockholm Buddha Centre. The Council decided to say no to that request. I met up with a person in person to give this no. There was definitely a reaction. Later, there was a much bigger reaction in relationship to two GFR mitras who were part of the context of this decision. And as you know, with these things, they ripple out and more and more people get triggered and reactive or supportive or whatever their (laughs) response is. Um, And for those of you who know me well, that's a very diplomatic and simplified version of that story. And that happened in my first two weeks as chair and what followed was the worst summer of my life and it took me two or three years as chair to kind of ease out of the kind of yeah whatever (laughs) happened to me (laughs) following from that I'm not saying I'm the only kind of person who was kind of affected Uh, that's not what I'm trying to say but that's how my chairmanship started Uh, so the whole thing of love and power and how how we kind of work with that, navigate through that has been very central to me trying to be a better and better chair. Um, yeah. So I would say the key issue was uh, what happened with the reactions was to do with power mode, hierarchy, structures, institutions, the whole thing. That was also, you know, just a time when the latest kind of media attention around Bante and sexuality and, and all the rest of it kind of uh, exploded. Um, So I think it wasn't just what we decided uh, as a council. But yeah, that that was the start of me being the chair. So I would say that personally, for me, there has been a quite strong tension between my own fear of conflict as a person (laughs) uh, and together with that of trying to avoid being seen as someone who misuses power. That's not how I want to be perceived. I think you can probably uh, recognize that in yourselves too. And then on the other hand, trying to be a person with kind of an integrity as a practitioner, as an order member, and as a chair. And I think that, that's been a very strong tension for me. Uh, so when I was listening to Badra yesterday, um, when he talked about being more and more curious, open, receptive, <clears throat> relational, um, I wish to be more of those things, uh, quite clearly. That's a wish. I want to be more of that. And I also very strongly resonate um, with what Bante writes about the first precept in the Ten Pillars when he says, he writes, in terms of the precious stone of which it consists, the first precept is a pillar of diamond. It is a pillar of diamond because the diamond is the most valuable of all precious stones and capable of being cut into facets so as to make a brilliant. It is also the hardest substance substance known, even as the love mode is stronger than the power mode and capable of overcoming it in all its forms. So I really resonate with that. But what happens after I hear Bhadra say all those good qualities and when I read uh, this bit of banter, uh, what comes immediately after for me is that I realize that the reality and the complexity of trying to run a Buddhist center makes that pretty hard. Uh, and I think probably what I'm sharing with you is that, that tension again. So I'm not going to offer answers, uh, but reflections and hopefully questions that you can then go into your groups and explore together with stuff from the other talks. Yeah. So coming back to the 10 pillars ag- again... Um, Bante writes, But what is power? In this context, power means simply the capacity to use force, violence being the actual use of that capacity to negate the being of another person, whether wholly or in part. To operate in accordance with the power mode means, therefore, to relate to other beings, other living beings, in terms of violence or in such a way as to negate rather than affirm their being. To operate in accordance with the love mode is the opposite of this. So for me this raises two questions. What's the difference between using force or what violence and to negate someone's being? I wouldn't say they are exactly the same thing, a question mark maybe. Uh, so that's one area that I find interesting. and. Along with that, of course, is what does it actually mean to affirm someone else's being? So if we have a spectrum from love on one end to power on the other, I would say that forcing someone to do something, especially if there's violence, physical violence involved, that's probably the power extreme. Um, And we probably all know what we want from the love extreme. Uh, But I'm quite curious about, like, Somewhere on that spectrum, there's a grey area. And I would say I'm not very clear about when, you, when is it negating someone and when is it affirming someone and where do you draw the lines. And, you know, there's conditionality and complexity. <laughs> so depending on context and all the rest of it, like where... Yeah, like violence is very clear. But what's the tricky grey area that we have to navigate um, ethically? Um, when communicating uh, with other people. Yeah, so if there's no violence involved, what would negating someone's being mean? That's a question for me. And how about affirming someone? And I don't think that affirming someone automatically means that you have to always go along with everybody's views, wishes, likes and dislikes, Um, to me that can't be as simple as that. Um, So in my case of the example of having to say no to someone wanting something, is saying no to someone automatically being in the power mode? Uh, I don't think so, but I'm not sure where the lines are kind of uh, with that. (laughs) Moving on, um, I've been in conversations about power mode and love mode where, or the similar territory where sometimes people have been curious about what's the difference between power and influence. I think that's a really interesting one. <laughs> I keep coming back to that, what's the difference between power and influence? Um, when is it power? When is it influence? Are they the same thing? Are they different? And if they are different, what is the difference? <laughs> Again, I won't give you answers, but raising the question, and I guess related to that, I'm curious about the levels of power or influence. So there could be spiritual power or influence, institutional power and in, uh, influence. I guess on a more kind of basic human level, like a social, emotional, psychological influence on other people. Uh, so all of those are happening. And when is it just the fact that we have an influence, and when is it uh, when do you get into the territory of power? So, I'll return to the Ten Pillars and read one last time. Um, The Love Mode comes into operation only in the case of exceptional individuals, and even they may not always find it possible or even desirable to act in accordance with the Love Mode. Interesting. Then comes the often quoted bit a bit later when Bante says, Whenever one has to operate in accordance with the power mode, the power mode must always be subordinated to the love mode. And a bit further on in the same, um, the, the next paragraph, he continues, Besides operating in accordance with the power mode, only to the extent that the power mode is subordinated to the love mode, order members should do their best to switch from the power mode to the love mode. In as many different ways as possible. So I just, I just find that so interesting. It's so clear that we just have to do more and more love, and at the same time, not even that uh, very exceptional individual um, with love mode in operation will always find it possible or even desirable to act in the love mode. What does that mean? And I don't mean term like clarifying the concepts here. I mean, what does that mean if you're the chair of a Buddhist center or a preceptor or whatever responsibility we have in the in the Sangha? What does that mean, that kind of balance? I don't know. Uh, I would like to know. Um, I hope I will know one day. So I would say that one of the big challenges of being a chair or holding responsible responsibility is the whole area of different views and opinions. And of course, it's not just views and opinions. There are uh, projections, uh, samskaras, previous experiences and all the rest of it in the mix, uh, as we all probably know very well. Um, and I would see my role as chair at partly being trying to remember to come back to a bigger perspective again and again and again uh, of course, in myself, but also like in the context and so on. Um, so I guess we are in this position where we just have to find the best possible way of holding the tension between the individual and the collective. And I think locally that could mean between the individual person as having a need, for example, and the local sangha as a whole, maybe having different needs. Uh, maybe different needs need to be met uh, in the same context. But I think also, on the international level, as a community, uh, the, the individual centre and the whole movement. Um, and I think that's another tension we just have to, have to relate to in the best possible way. So then coming back to the whole thing of disagreeing or saying no to someone, wanting something. Um, when is that power? When is it love? How do you use power in a way that is subordinated to love? If you're going to say no to someone, uh, tricky, tricky business. So almost, almost there. <laughs> so the latest, latest bit of reflection I've been doing. So it's just something that started recently. Um, it's related to the four tantric rights and particularly <coughs> the right of destruction. So together with a few people in the room, I was at Padmaloka Kalanamitra retreat. Um, focusing quite a lot on the four tantric rites and Kalyana Mitrata, uh, Really, really um, helpful framework, I would say. Um, so what would it look like to skillfully express the right of destruction as a chair, in this case, um, in a way that's balanced by pacification, prospering and fascination? Uh, so I guess it's like with the four myths, they work together. And I guess it's the same with the tantric rites. Uh, you can't just destroy uh, and you can't just love. Um, so I guess for me, that's interesting in in, in relationship to love and power. Um, we have the whole symbolism of the wrathful and all the rest of it. Uh, of course, it's skillful. What does that mean? Um, just latest, latest layer of reflections uh, for me. So I guess that's moving into the territory of a a coming ECA, exploring the archetype of the warrior. So I'm not going (laughs) to say more about that. Hopefully someone can give a brilliant keynote talk on the warrior uh, archetype in the future. So I will end with two things Bante said to me the last time I saw him in person. So I came to Bante. we we talked a bit about Stockholm probably, uh, he he was always a bit interested. I met him three times about the fact that I had been working with funerals and so on. He, he really liked that some of the members worked with death directly. So, but after that, um, I said, "Oh yeah, there's something I want to, to 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 kind of share with you or explore with you, Bante And I said, "Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for me, being the chair, is that you know all these people coming to me, wanting something, and if I don't give them what they want, you know." dot, dot, dot. You know, this will happen, that will come back to me, there will be reactions and all the rest of it. So I feel like I'm trapped. I said to him, I, people want something and if I don't give that to them, there will be consequences, basically. <laughs> and He leaned forward and he smiled and he said something along the lines of, well, I've had a bit of that myself over the years. <laughs> and I just realised, oh. Of course, Uh, but I just found that interesting that he was used to people coming to him and having, you know, wanting something from him. Uh, I I assume he was skillful in trying to do that in the most loving way. Um, And a bit later in the same conversation, we talked about praise and blame, of course, related to this. And he said to me, when you get a bouquet of flowers, expect a brick to come flying through the window, <laughs> and when a brick comes flying through the window, know that you will get another bouquet of flowers. Uh,
1: so the first thing to say is, um, I do get excited when I'm talking about the Dharma, so I do speak quickly, so if, uh, if English isn't your first language and I speak too fast, just uh, give me a little wave and I'll try and slow down. So, uh, yeah, so I was asked to give this little talk, and I thought, um, uh, what do I know about this? What do I know about this? I really loved the last theme, uh, Chair as Magician. I could do that all day long, and that felt like I had a natural affinity with that archetype. Uh, but, so I wasn't sure initially whether I had anything to say. And uh, I gave it a bit of thought, and I thought, oh, no, I have, this is a weak area for me, so this is something that I've learned to do better and uh, I've thought about and I've practised so maybe I, in a way, can say something about it. Maybe in a way that makes me even better qualified because I've had to think about it. Uh, so I only want to talk about, I'm mainly going to talk about the love mode in a way or the lover particularly so it's worked out quite nicely. Um, and uh, I just want to talk about three areas or three areas that I've tried to do this better in my role as Chair of Brixton uh, in South London. And uh, the first area is um, fascination, so uh, I was on the same retreat actually, uh, the Padmaloka retreat at, um, uh, with, um, the, but on the four rites and uh, Padmasagra talked about the red rite fascination which is obviously uh, a good match for the lover archetype and uh, he was recounting, um, a, he found a, a list of uh, rough notes of Bantes that talked about uh, things that he learned from different teachers and one of these teachers uh, it said, from teacher MD, I'd learned to give people what. If you want to attract people, I've learned to give them what they want. And uh, he researched who this person was and looked up Lama MD and so on. So couldn't find anybody that was under that name. And then uh, Padma Vajra turned up this account from his biography, which turned out to be uh, Masala Dosa teacher masala dosa, and it turned out to be an Indian restaurant uh, that Bante was taken to during one of his tours uh, that was thronged with people that were all there to get these marvellous masala dosas. So Bante had learnt from teacher masala dosa that if you want to attract people, give them what they want. So I think that um, we need to do this as chairs. So people that come into our centres... Uh, want something, don't they? They want. uh, Padmasagra said they want a Buddhist, which I thought was very good. You know, they're there for all sorts of different reasons, looking for meaning, maybe they're struggling, maybe they want friendship, maybe they want truth. But I think we have to try and give them what they want. We have to try and give them what they want, if you want to attract them. And uh, so I try to do this the best I can. And uh, so when I'm at a class, um, I will... um, It's sort of funny, because I'm a rather... Actually, I'm quite an introverted person. I'm sort of very happy to spend uh, weeks on my own, really. I'd be very happy not to have to meet with anybody. But um, uh, when I'm at a class, something happens, a sort of switch uh, flips, and I've become extrovert, and I think nothing of sort of walking up to people I don't know at all and uh, speaking to them and finding out why they're here, why they've come, and trying to engage them uh, in, their, in whatever it is that they want. And I don't think this is exclusively something I've learnt from my time as a dharma teacher or as a chair. I think it goes back before that. But, you know, I, I seem to have this capacity in me. This lover archetype seems to come out and express itself. Uh, you know, the lover, uh, in a way, tries to be fascinating, tries to be alluring. And I try to give people what they're there for, if you so I mean. And uh, it seems to work. It seems to work because people uh, seem to respond to that. And quite often, uh, you know... I. You've probably all had it. You make a throwaway comment and then people come back to you later on and say, oh, yeah, when you said that thing, you know, that really made a difference to me. Uh, So I just try and do that as much as possible. And, uh, yeah, it seems to work and it seems to keep people coming and it seems to bring people in. And there's another area of this, actually, which I think is interesting, which is around projection. Uh, So we, as order members, we, you know, uh, we hold an archetype. As chairs, we also hold an archetype. You know, it means something when the chair of the centre is there, or the chair of the centre is teaching this course or that course or giving this talk. So I think we hold an archetype. And, uh, you know, some projection is inevitable. It's almost as inevitable, particularly amongst beginners, as, you know, when you sit down to meditate, but your mind wanders. So it's, you know, it's going to happen. And I think we're a little bit too afraid of projection sometimes. I think we can be a bit too um, cautious of it, because... I think it does have a positive side to it. Of course, there are dangers, but I think it means that people, in a way, take you more seriously. Yeah, um, what, well, they're coming. You know, they're coming to our Buddhist centres, and we're inviting them into a community of people that are trying to transform their lives. And it's we're asking a huge amount of them if they really want to transform their lives. You know, and there's a whole range of voices of, out there. People telling them to do this. People telling them to do that. And what it means is if there is an element of that, at least at the start, it means that people are a bit more willing to listen to you, yeah? A bit more willing to listen to you. So there's a, a chap that's just started coming along to Brixton, who's he's really like new, he's quite raw in a way as well, you know, you sort of probably will know those people, that he uh, actually spent a bit of time in Canada in a, a Buddhist monastery there, he lived there for about a year. And, you know, we were developing a bit of a connection, and he just told me that uh, I happened to remind him of his teacher there in a way so I could sort of see that that dynamic was starting to be set up and I just said oh yeah that's interesting and you know in a way didn't go there with it but what it's led to is actually there is already there's something of a strength of connection there with him so you know he's coming to ask me Dharma questions and asking me about this and asking me about that and it's sort of in a way offered up an opportunity for friendship Uh, of course the downside of that or the danger of that is in a way believing it, isn't it? Believing the projection and uh, in a way thinking that you're the authority perhaps, maybe that's more your power mode, thinking that you actually know what the right thing is for these people, uh, telling them what they want rather than in a way giving them what they want, if you see what I mean. So I think that's the first area, so uh, trying to be fascinating, trying to be fascinating, trying to give people uh, what they want. Uh, The other area, actually, um, for me, is um, trying to activate eros. And, um, you know, eros is this uh, kind of excitement, drive, passion. uh, And, um, you know, we're, uh, in a way, like I think Badra touched upon it uh, yesterday, you know, we're heart-led beings, aren't we? You know, you can rationalise and you can present uh, logical arguments, but at the end of the day... It is emotions which get us moving, and uh, that's uh, true for everybody. And it's particularly true in the Dharma as well. You know, uh, things need people need ways into the Dharma that excite them, that infuse them, that will get them moving and will make them make big shifts in their life. So I really um, try the best I can to try and activate that those interests in people. I think the lover really does uh, try to understand. Uh, the person, if you sort of mean, like uh, a good lover will really understand uh, who they're in a relationship with, will know all their kind of, uh, what interests them, what they don't like, what this, what that, they'll sort of know their being. And so um, I I sort of really make a point of trying to understand what lights people up. So particularly amongst Mitras, people training for ordination, and people in Uh, and order members as well. What interests them? What excites them in the Dharma? Uh, What do they want to do? And I think as a chair, that really needs to come into the sort of visioning we do. You know, uh, something I try to do very much in our team meetings and council meetings is really kind of, in a way, taking stock of what everyone's excited about. I mean, there's always things at the centre that just have to happen that nobody's really excited about. Uh, But there's... The best, uh, the best I can, I try to bring in everybody's interests. And so um, even if uh, we end up prioritising a different set of things to what people are interested in, as long as, there's a, as long as people have been heard and as long as there's enough of what they're interested in in a, in a sort of plan or in a vision, quite often they'll be happy to go along with whatever else you want doing. Uh, and it just creates a really lovely sense of, uh, kind of enthusiasm and energy uh, and so on. Uh, the opposite, I think, is if you end up telling people what to do. You know, you sort of have a... You, because you have, as a chair, the broad perspective, uh, in a way you can sort of see what needs to happen. And uh, I think sometimes it's very easy to just say, well, this really needs to happen now, with the kind of exclusion of everything else. And I think if that goes too far... It's, I mean, sometimes it needs to happen, but if it goes too far, I think what, hap- what happens is that somehow the kind of... Um, excitement or energy just sort of goes out of the project and, uh, you know, you you quickly pick it up in the atmosphere, don't you, if people are doing things that they don't really want to do and people at the classes know and, you know, it all just sort of trickles down. So I think, uh, yeah, trying to get people, uh, uh, their Eros activated, try and get them, try and give them things that excites them. Uh, And part of that for me is saying yes to people. I, I sort of have a general policy of trying to say yes to whatever people want to do. Uh, So whenever people come to me and say, I'd like this to happen, I try to say yes. I mean, sometimes what they mean is, I think you should do that, in which case I say no, or (laughs) maybe you should do it. Uh, But if they genuinely are excited about something and they want to do it, then I try to say yes, as long as it's, of course, roughly in accordance with kind of what we're trying to do and, you know, ethical precepts and so on. Uh, where where it's kind of where you say no, you're just sort of blocking energy. And uh, I think you know I take the approach of we want as much energy in the sangha as possible. So where where's that energy? Where can I get that energy into the sangha? And uh, it, it does really also influence how I think about things or how I think about uh, what to do next. Because um, quite often, if there's a bit of enthusiasm for a particular area of work, even if it's not a main priority, I sort of think it's a bit of an open door. You know, it's sort of something that you can get done quite quickly and the person's going to be quite enthusiastic about it. So I, uh, I, yeah, I really ch- try to plan out, okay, what are the kind of quick wins or the low-hanging fruit or what are people excited about? Let's do those first and then let's work on the harder stuff a bit later. Uh, so, yeah, it's part of, in a way, saying yes and thinking about uh, that. So where is the eros, where is the energy in your uh, sangha, in your teams uh, and in yourself as well, I guess? And then finally, um, finally, I want to talk about loving more. I want to talk, uh, loving more, and it's uh, um, this is really an area I'm not very good at, and I've really had to work at. Um, so I think um, uh, what I've sort of learned. So you know, this really comes out of kind of conflict and difficulty, I think. And, you know, as a chair, you probably don't need to be convinced of this, as a chair, you'll probably get into a bit of difficulty and a bit of conflict from time to time. And you'll probably have to disappoint people and say, you will have to say no to people sometimes. And um, uh, I think, you know, if it can be... um, uh, I think it can really transform a kind of conversation or uh, a communication that needs to happen. If you can just... In a way, not take it too personally, and just try to really keep on loving the person, even if, in a way, uh, you think uh, what you're saying is correct or right, and you know there's some uh, problems that need to be highlighted. Uh, that that idea of loving more, um, I think, is really helpful. I'll give you an example: is that um, uh, currently in Brixton, I've had a bit of a falling out with another order member, and they're a close friend of mine, and. Um, it, you know, it's quite, a big, it's quite a big disagreement. It's around something which, in a way, we have quite different accounts of. Uh, I have concerns about the way one thing happened and he doesn't see it that way, in a way. So there's quite, in a way, quite an entrenched, uh, kind of sticky area of discussion to be had. And, uh, yeah, obviously there's been, there's been a bit of a breakdown of trust as well. And I was on this this retreat, actually, this Kellen Amitra retreat, and uh, I was just sitting down in meditation. It was just churning around... Uh, you know, every time I sat down, it was just like kind of problem solving. Like, oh, how am I going to do this? What do we need to do? What are the processes? How are we going to make this happen? And every time I sort of arrived at an answer, I just felt something was missing. There was just something that didn't feel quite right about it. It didn't feel quite full enough. And then about five or six days into the retreat, uh, sitting in meditation, and this um, emotional dam just sort of broke in me. And suddenly all that love was there again. It just been sort of stymied and uh, held back in all of this thinking and processing and strategizing. And uh, I was very emotional, I was uh, teary. And I just sort of, um, like, uh, you know, when the meditation finished, I walked into the lounge, I saw Prasadacharan. And I just said, oh, I I know what I need to do. I know what I need to do. And uh, that amounted to just, in a way, going back and loving more, like loving this person more and uh, part of that I think is uh, being quick to uh, apologise and say sorry for the things that we can, uh, in a way being the first one to do that, uh, so that was something I was able to do, in a way um, I felt that there was some errors. I was able to own some bits of it and was able to go back and say sorry and I was also able to go back and say well look I know we're in having a disagreement but I do really love you and this is what I'm trying to do and uh, that, you know, has a lovely softening effect and it means that what could have been quite an entrenched, uh, difficult, ongoing kind of feud is actually softened and, uh, you know, we're able to start to work through some of those principal issues. Uh, so, yeah, loving more, being quick to forgive and uh, apologise. And um, in a way, another expression of this is something I've been practising the last couple of years is just telling people that I love them, actually. Telling people I love them. Uh, This wasn't something I kind of grew up with in my family, so I really had to learn how to do this. And uh, I do really mean love as well. I know that we can... I don't know if it's a British thing, but I feel that sometimes we can be a bit tepid in how we communicate our affection to people. Uh, I mean, maybe this is a bit intolerant, but one of my pet hates is where people sort of sign off their emails with, with Meta. You know, it feels a bit sort of insincere somehow, whereas... I think meta is meant to be really hot and warm and, uh, you know, so, uh, so I tell, rather than tell people I, um, I like them or, uh, you know, I appreciate them, I tell them I love them, I tell them I love them and I try and tell as many people as possible that I love them and uh, it, always, it always has quite a strong effect on people, you know, and it does have that softening effect so I think that's something that uh, we could do in our own ways is just tell people uh, that we love them more. So that's all I want to talk about, those three areas. So uh, fascination, uh, being fascinating, living out that archetype, uh, giving people uh, what they want, uh, activating Eros, seeing where the interest is in uh, your teams and uh, sangha, uh, saying yes to people, uh, getting them excited and uh, loving more, being quick to apologise, uh, trying to, uh, in a way, see it, see it from the big perspective, don't take it personally and telling people that you love them. Thanks. Mm-hmm.
2: It's interesting, this whole question. I think this whole area of love mode, power mode, and I'm sure it resonates for everybody. Um, I haven't really been doing much, much thinking about it, but I suppose we all experience it, you know, and how we choose to take on the role of chair, how we find our way of being chair, because I think every chair is different, and we all bring unique qualities, and we all have our strengths and weaknesses, and every centre every situation is different, and maybe require different ways of chairing. So it's not like there's a, this is a good chair, this is a bad chair. But I would be surprised if most of us don't actually have an, even if it's unconscious version of, this is a good chair, this is a bad chair, and I'm a bad chair. (laughs) And uh, I know it's something that I can get into and have got into in the past. And uh, I really didn't want to be chair. Uh, Parliament, who was the chair before me, he asked me quite a few times, and I kept saying no, and then at a certain point he was really going to leave, and he was sort of saying why he thought I could be a good chair, and I did sort of think, well, he saw qualities in me. And also, I did feel a lot of uh, love for the situation in the centre, and I felt actually, yes, I could give something to this, and that's why I took it on, but... um, it was very much something uncomfortable for me because I'd spent most of my life trying not to be in any kind of position of authority or power, and I am naturally, uh, like Prasad Dattarayan, a bit introvert. And although, you know, I had many years being a classical musician and up front playing, I could hide behind the music. I'd, you know, when I stopped being a classical musician and I did my first interview, I thought I'd never done an interview. I've never talked to me. I've just played my music, and if they like my music, then they would give me the job. But you know, So actually standing up front, uh, even teaching was quite a big stretch for me initially, uh, let alone taking on the role of chair. And then I think even now it's sort of like trying to work out, well, what is the role of chair? How am I going to do it? You know, and I have lots of different people thinking I should be chair in this way or that way, often completely contradicting each other or even the same people contradicting each other, because on the one hand, they're wanting me to show much more leadership and be much more upfront and a bit more like the sort of classical model of a a CEO or something. And at the same time, they don't want me to give them any kind of instructions or orders. (laughs) 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 And they want me to tell them exactly what they want to do. So it can be kind of... uh, Probably you've had that. Um, And just more recently, you know, there's been a bit of conflict with somebody on the team and... You know, a lot of it has been around them perceiving me as not being the kind of leader they want. In fact, even telling me I have no leadership qualities at all. And, uh, and I was thinking, well, I know there are certain things that are strengths, whole areas that are not my strengths, and I kind of feel ideally as chair, we're aware of what our strengths and weaknesses are, and we manage to get teams and trustees to, in a way, supplement the areas we're not so strong at. That we can have that oversight, um, but not necessarily be expected to do everything, but I think there can be that, um, you know, in terms of all the projections, people think the chair should be everything, isn't it? So it was interesting, because I went back, because of these conversations, to looking a little bit at, like, well, what are the role of chair as seen in Triratna? So uh, I thought I might just go back to that, because some of us may not have looked at this recently, or maybe we never have looked at it. Um if this is here. So what is a centre chair? Being a centre chair is an important responsibility. Essentially, the responsibility is a spiritual one. The chair is responsible for the spiritual well-being of the local mandala. There is a direct correlation between the effectiveness of a chair and the state of the centre. To the extent that a chair is effective, then the centre will flourish. In practice, the chair has two main areas of responsibility, spiritual responsibility and legal responsibility. And the spiritual responsibility essentially involves the chair acting as a kalyana mitra to all in the local centre, either directly or indirectly, to order members, newcomers, friends and mitras. They encourage and inspire and aid others. He or she needs to help create sangha through the practice of the four Sangha avastus, Generosity, kindly speech, exhortation and exemplification. He or she needs to help foster a spirit of Kalyana Mitra throughout the whole Mandala and to provide the lead arising out of their own going for refuge to the Three Jewels. The chair should have an impact on the locality and see possibilities for establishing links with the whole community and encourage those to identify the whole movement, not just their local center. And then in terms of the legal responsibilities up to the chair, um, as chair of the charity, as well as uh, the centre, to oversee the effective legal running of the charity, to be acquainted with the charity law and legal law, employment law, uh, make sure the trustees are aware of their responsibilities and also to make sure they don't get caught up in administration and business at the expense of the spiritual welfare of the centre and the situation and they need to know how to dedicate effectively, and others. I mean, I think that's... There's a whole lot more, but I think that's kind of the essentials of it. Um, So when I think about myself, I think I'm quite good on the first part, the spiritual part. Um, And I think in terms of, like, the financial situation... I've always, you know, I've had a whole lot of time trying to get better governance, better communication, all these sorts of things, and that's still a struggle. And that whole thing of being a team-based right livelihood. So you're trying to come from your spiritual values, you're trying to communicate on the basis of the Dharma and ethics and your practice and friendship. And there's all the practical things about, well, what happens when people aren't doing their work or doing their job? What happens when there's conflicts? And... Uh, I think probably like most uh, tree centres, we haven't had loads of policies and procedures in place. We are putting more in place now because we're realising we need to. Um, certainly I had a situation that happened during lockdown where I came back from retreat to find that two key members weren't talking to each other. It was like four months before they started speaking to each other, didn't even want to be in the same Zoom meetings. And then what do you do with that, you know? Um, So I think some of it is about trying to create positive conditions and I think for me, um, what inspires me as chair is wanting to share the gift of the Dharma and that's coming from a real place of love of the Dharma and wanting more and more people to have that opportunity to access the Dharma and also trying to create positive conditions for myself and for others at the centre, you know, for our growth and whatever. And uh, so, it di- you know, there's lots of different ways that you can approach that. Um, so I find it quite interesting that now there's a lot of um, discussion, conflict, polarisation around things like whether or not you want to have inclusiveness, inclusion, diversity at the centre. You know, whether or not we care about the environment. Because to me, there's also expressions of love. You know, you care about the planet. You care about the people living on the planet, all the other creatures that we share, the thing. So why is that political rather than something that fits in with our dharmic practice and our, you know, you know, coming from the love mode? And in terms of inclusion, again, it's like, well, if we want to share the gift of the Dharma, and lots of people say we want to make the Dharma available to everybody, well, given that we live in a particular world or society or wherever it is we are, sometimes those conditions don't make it possible for people to access the Dharma. So are we going to actually be more proactive and make the conditions in our centre more welcoming for people? Are we willing to go out into the local community and the society or even online, much wider internationally? And to me, that's still sharing the gift of the Dharma and it's coming from a place of... love, really, coming from a place of wanting to connect with others and give them that opportunity. Um, And I think... It is very interesting, this love mode, power mode, and particularly how it was framed to us, like sharing uh, in the love mode and struggles in the power mode. So, um, and yes, I think for me, given the kind of background I have, I've always um, been a bit wary of people in authority, people exercising power, um, institutions, organisational or whatever, because it's been abused a lot, you know. And I can see that around me in society, and I can see that in what's happened around my various communities I belong to, and also around family and things like that. So there is that awareness of what can happen when power is abused. And I think I've very much not wanted to be like that. So I've very much not wanted to be in positions of authority or have power over anybody else, if you want to say that. And I think so for me, one of my struggles actually has been about owning my own power and authority, and owning it in the in the situation of being a chair. I think I'm only really just coming through to that place now. Um, And there's also the situations you're in where sometimes you can't just directly get something; you need to sort of bring everybody on board, or you need to do a lot of going up through the back channels, if you want to say that, before to get things done. and there may be people who might actively have very different views or all kinds of difficult dynamics that mean you can't just say, oh, let's do this, this is the vision, let's get it done. Um, so I think for me, sometimes when I want to exercise power in an unskillful way, it's coming from those sort of states of frustration or fear. Uh, there are various things that might trigger my fear, some of it fear of conflict or what people might think of me or what happens if it goes wrong you um, know, wanting to get it right uh, and there's also fear I think there's also the Vedana response for me you know, something's unpleasant and I don't want it and I want to change things or that's something I like, and I want to have more of it and I want to make that happen um, so it's very helpful to be more aware of when that's happening for me and not just act out of it kind of unconsciously um, and when I get more fixated on outcomes rather than process, you know, and wanting something to happen in a short time frame rather than acknowledging, actually, it will take quite a lot of time to get people on board or to change the culture for this to happen. You know, I just want it to happen. You know, there is an inner dictator in me that <laughs> would really like to just say, let's do it and it happen, or you should do this or you should do that. I don't usually say that, but there is sometimes a part of me that wants to, if I'm honest. Um, and I think... Um, I do think it's interesting, though, because also when I was reflecting on power, it's sort of like there was that, oh, love good, power bad. But actually, we need power. And I do think it's interesting that, you know, if, if you look at the version of paramitas because there's the six paramitas, but there's the ten paramitas as well. And in the ten paramitars, number nine is bala, which is basically power and strength. And it's seen as, you know... One of the qualities of Bodhisattva, you know, one of the things that we need to do in order to get awakened and enlightened. So um, I think that's something we kind of forget. And I do think within the culture of Tri Ratna, we don't often like to talk about power or having power. And then it becomes a little bit taboo and then it gets, you know, it, there's all stuff happening always. There's power dynamics in any situation, any relationship. And if we're not actually able to be open and honest at knowledge, that's there then, again, it's more likely to come out in unskillful ways. Um, And some of that is also including, like, well, what are the effects of what's happened in society? You know, there are institutional things, there are kind of cultural things that do give people more power, you know? And uh, if we can't even acknowledge that or acknowledge the fact that we may actually be in a position where we have a bit more power or that some people may be in a position where they have less power... um, then we're more likely to cause harm as well. So I think, for me, love mode is also partly acknowledging that. I mean, I do very much uh, like that quote from Sangha about that the love mode needs to be stronger when you're bringing in the power mode. And even I don't know if they're separate. Sometimes they can be the same, you know. We do have all these dualities. We go from one extreme to the other. But actually, if we can bring the two together... So that we can act in our power coming from the love mode, then that is very different. I realise also that for me, love, as it's used in sort of a lot of Western culture, is such a big word and it's got so many other connotations and understandings um, that I actually prefer using some of the words like metta or like Karana. And I'm very much. Um, <coughs> So for me, it would be more like coming from the you know, which I think is a much wider and more specific... Because a lot of what is talked of as love is actually Pema. It does have all those sticky attachments and all those... Um, you know, wanting something for something, rather than that sort of more open, selfless love. And for me, sometimes love can feel a little bit too much. <laughs> a little bit of a big ask. I mean, I want to come from love, but in terms of, like, do I love everybody in the world, do I love everybody in my sangha, that's an aspiration, but actually, I'm not always able to do it. But I think what I am able to do is be kind. You know, I can be kinder. It's much easier to be a little bit kinder, a little bit kinder, try and respond with kindness than to just immediately think, oh, I love this person. Um, And I feel very much that... What helps me to do that is my own practice. So, the depth of my connection to the three jewels—you know, my love of the Buddha and the Buddha's bodhisattvas and the ideal, my love of the Dharma and all the different teachings and practices, and also my love of community, the spiritual community, the sangha. You know, those are all things that um, inspire me. And particularly, I suppose that we go for refuge to the arya sangha rather than the aspiring sangha. So, for me all the archetypal Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have been a great inspiration and continue to be one, you know, and being able to try and come from places inspired by their qualities or their wisdoms. I have a particular thing for the five Buddhas, so um, I'll always come back to them. Um, so it's, it's, you know, we've made a connection with Amitabha on this particular uh, meeting. And I think his wisdom, his discriminating wisdom, where he sees the uniqueness of everyone and everything, that is the basis, I think, for that flowing of love and compassion. Um, and it's said that he looks on everyone with the eyes of a lover, you know. And when you have a lover, so long since I've had one, but anyway, you know, that, that whole thing where everything about them. you you really are fascinated by, you love them, you can see all their messiness, all their faults, all their shortcomings, and you love them for those, you know, and you're not going to, you know, reject them because of that, you know. And maybe you might want to support them to be more who they could be, to realise more of their potential, but basically you accept them as they are, you love them as they are. And that is such a gift if we can do that for others, if we can see people as they are. And I think that's not not hard to do, actually, if you actually take the time to be with them and witness them and listen to them. Um, and that is one way that I think we can of- often give people more confidence, more of that fearlessness, if people feel seen and appreciated, and uh, that starts with ourselves, that we have to be able to see ourselves mm-hmm. and appreciate ourselves. Uh, I'm just going to do a little quote from St. Um... There is, in fact, only one need of one's own that has to be fulfilled before one can preoccupy oneself effectively with the needs of others. And it is not a physical or material need, but simply a matter of emotional positivity and security. We need to appreciate our own worth and feel that it is appreciated by others. To love ourselves and feel that we are loved by others. So if we can do that for ourselves, if we can do that for members of our teams, our sangha, I think that is one way of uh, chairing in the love mode, you know, to see people, to appreciate them, to witness them. And uh, to just allow them to be themselves, to trust them, actually. Um, I think sometimes we can be a little, like, we know best and give people advice. And when I think about how messy my spiritual path has been and how sometimes the most disastrous appearing decisions I've made have ended up with me getting more insight and growing and developing. You know, we can never really know what is best for someone's spiritual practice, can we? We can support them in their practice um, when they need it, but to say, you know, oh, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, well, how, who are we to say that we know that? But it's so tempting, isn't it, that we use our own experience and what worked for us to think that will work for somebody else. So I think there's something about sharing in the love mode about having a bit more receptivity and openness to the uniqueness of everybody and allow them to grow and flower in their own way. And at the same time, I'm equally inspired by Ratna wisdom of sameness and equality where you're basically seeing that although we have all these different manifestations and we all are so unique, there's another level where we're all the same, you know. Um, and of course, uh, Shakespeare's mirror-like wisdom, I think, really helps us. You know, if we just try and align ourselves with reality, see things as they really are, even on a sort of very mundane level, to see what's happening, or see what's happening within ourselves, within our bodies, see what's happening in particular dynamic, all those things, when we're not bringing in our stories uh, on it, and we're just trying to just see things as they are, then that again helps, I think. You know, if we can bring together the compassion and the wisdom, um, that dharmic perspective um, in whatever we're doing, that we might not be thinking every single decision we're thinking in terms of that, but I think that needs to be there as a kind of underlying value, You know, what inspires us, what keeps us on the path, what helps us to create those positive conditions for the people coming to the centre and the sangha. And how do we, you know, how do we communicate and embody the dharma, you know? And I think a lot of it is actually about that embodiment. You know, I do a lot of teaching. I love teaching. I think, I mean, you know, you're always growing as a teacher because it makes you have to sort of look at your own stuff and reflect on everything and you see what is different all the time. So I used to be much more clear about what I was doing and now I'm much more (laughs) exploratory with what I'm doing. Um... But there's some certain trust in the Dharma, you know. And I think that was one of the things that helped me get over my being shy about teaching and not thinking about teaching, because I basically wanted to communicate the Dharma. And I thought, even I can't wreck the Dharma, so I might not do it as best (laughs) as anybody else, but if I can at least communicate a little bit of it, you know. And then it's been trying to get better at it as a way. But I think one thing that I always get reminded of again and again is that I might think about stuff, I might think I've done a really good Talk or something, and then people will come back, and what they've heard is completely different. Or like you do a retreat, and you think, oh, that was a great retreat, we were so well, and we did it, 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 and then it comes back that the thing that most inspired people was sort of seeing the sort of friendship you had with the other people on the team, or how you were with the, with them. You know, I remember when I first came to West London, and I'd been at the LBC, and someone came along to do a course, and I thought, oh, they must have liked the teaching on the bit I did before, and it was no, I'd been friendly to them in the tea break. You know, so, but but those things are important, you know. I think those little acts of kindness and love in our interactions are coming from the love mode, and I think, uh, a bit like Viri Naga was saying, that is what will bring people back just as much as a teaching, in a way we're embodying the Dharma, or embodying certain values of the Dharma, and people respond to that. Yeah? And in order to do that, we have to be able to be kind to ourselves, be honest with ourselves and uh, be vulnerable, I think. I think if we can allow ourselves to admit our own imperfections and the things that we struggle with, our own fears, that empowers other people to be able to turn towards their own and work with their own, you know. Because I think in the gift of fearlessness, for me, there are two main ways that it seems to work, and one is when you can see people's qualities and you can appreciate their qualities, which maybe they can't see at that time. And another is, if you can be open, if you can be vulnerable, or whatever it is, that gives up people permission to do that too, because they can see it. And that might not be something they've encountered in their particular lives before, in their families or their circles, or whatever. So I think it is a bit like the for practice. We do very much need to start with ourselves and loving ourselves. And owning our own power, and owning our own qualities. Um, so again, coming back to the brahma Viharas, you know that self metta that kindness towards yourself, the compassion towards yourself, you because know, we all have dukkha, we've all experienced dukkha conditions in our lives, right up till now, you know, that may still be affecting us, you know. So can we turn towards that with dukkha, with that dukkha with uh, compassion? But then I think for me also, like mudita is so crucial. That being able to be glad, rejoice in your own qualities, own your own qualities and also do that for other people and be able to connect with joy. And it's so great in Buddhism, isn't it, that joy is an enlightenment factor. And I think then it comes right back to upekka and equanimity because that's having the dharmic perspective, that awareness of dukkha, of impermanence, of insubstantiality and being able to hold whatever you're experiencing, you know, the good, the bad and inner experience, outer experience, and that then makes it much more possible when you're responding to others not to be reactive or to sort of allow them to be more and more of themselves. So for me, I think there's a whole part about my own personal practice that is really crucial in order to be able to chair in the love mode and to also be able to chair in the power mode in a more skillful way rather than in an unskillful way. And when I... When I haven't wanted to own my power and a lot of the, you know, I don't know about yours, but we had a, we still do have a constitution that's all about consensus and how does that actually work in practice? You know, sometimes you do actually need to make decisions. Sometimes you do actually need to take a lead and people might not like it, you know, as Prasad Acharya was, And then you get all these reactions and do you just stop? You know, and there's times when I have let myself stop, and now I'm thinking, actually, that wasn't helpful. you know. And even though people may rage against whatever it is that I am or feel um, disappointed that I'm not doing it the way they are, in a way, I can only be the chair I am. I spent probably a couple of years trying to be the chair other people wanted me to be, <coughs> and it didn't really work because uh, I wasn't coming from my own self, I wasn't coming from my own qualities or my own practice in the same way, and then I was getting more and more undermined because trying to do it in a way that wasn't natural to me meant I did it not very well, you know. So I think there's something also about being able to acknowledge, well, who are we, you know, I'm a chair, what are my particular skills, what am I bringing to this situation, you know, maybe what are my weaknesses that I need support with, and, uh, you know, how best can I uh, support the centre and the sangha, you know. Um, so I think that's probably all I'm going to say, uh, so thank you.